Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 82. I got soul, and I'm super bad. Basilides of Alexandria. Basilides is a fascinating figure in the history of Christianity. Along with Valentinus and Marcion, he's one of the sort of evil trinity of heretical teachers of the second century who all have a few things in common. One, they're all three identified by later heresiologists as heretics, that is, teaching a wrong form of Christianity. They are, in fact, seen as especially important heretics. And this is probably because, two, they all three founded a movement, or at least the heresiologists considered that they have done so. So we have references in the case of Basilides to Basilideans, for a couple of centuries after the man himself lived, which was particularly irksome to the heresiologists. And three, all of these teachers have been identified by someone along the way as Gnostics. So in this episode, we're going to discuss what we know about Basilides, unlike the other second century figures we've been discussing, and we'll go on to discuss further, Basilides' writings really don't survive antiquity. And so later thinkers wanting to re-embrace Gnosticism in this or that form have almost nothing to go on with Basilides. But Basilides has remained a potent force in the esoteric imaginary, as we shall see. Maybe this is partly because his work is so frustratingly lost to us, making him a kind of convenient cipher for whatever a thinker's idea of Gnosis is. At any rate, no manuscript of Basilides survives from antiquity, His thought genuinely was rejected by orthodoxy and then very successfully repressed. No one can agree on what texts should be considered genuine fragments from Basilides, but the number of what are usually considered genuine fragments or citations or whatever hovers around 10, so really not much to go on. Nevertheless, there are a few reasons why he's more than worth devoting an episode to. As we shall see, Basilides was an esoteric philosophical Christian, so he's an important exemplar for just how diverse the emerging Christian movement was before the Orthodox clampdown, and he's an example of undeniable programmatic esotericism within Christianity. He also has a lot of interesting ideas, including a highly apophatic theology, or at least some heresiologists associating with a radical apophaticism. He has a doctrine of reincarnation, important ideas about astral influences and fate, and a demiurgic emanatory creation process. And his cosmos, his universe, is vast and interesting. Finally, Basilides did influence some crucial later thinkers, notably Clement of Alexandria, who opposes him, but nevertheless has a lot in common with him in certain ways. And even if Plotinus didn't actually know the work of Basilides, which is probably the case, but you never know, His thought gives us a few precious insights as to the kind of thinking going on in Alexandria between the great Philo of Alexandria of the first century and Plotinus in the third. What we really, really know about Basilides is tragically little. He lived in the early second century in Alexandria, teaching from maybe 117 to 138 CE, so we're back at the beginning of the century here. If the Schwepp were really chronological, we would have discussed this guy alongside Plutarch. So Basilides is a younger 
contemporary of Valentinus, whom we'll be discussing next time. Everyone agrees that he lived and taught in Alexandria, and it's also agreed that he wrote some books, but the titles are really up in the air. Scholars argue about them. I shall resist the temptation of getting into the controversies about what he might have written, but we can say with some certainty that he wrote commentaries on New Testament writings and or works of philosophical theology, and perhaps these were the same writings, commenting on scripture through a lens of esoteric philosophical hermeneutics. A gospel of Basilides is mentioned by Origen, but we don't really know what kind of text this was, much as we would like to. We also know that the later Basilideans may have had somewhat different teachings from Basilides himself. There may have been evolution in the thought of Basilides. There probably was. So this complicates things a little bit for the evidence. Now, beyond these bare facts, almost everything you can say about Basilides is problematic. So let's look at our sources for a moment, and you'll see why. Every witness to Basilides' thought which survives is hostile. Most scholars would agree that our best witness is Clement of Alexandria, firstly because he lived reasonably soon-ish after Basilides, being born sometime in the mid-2nd century, secondly because he lived at Alexandria, and so he knew the milieu in which Basilides lived and worked, and he was probably rubbing shoulders with some Basilideans, and thirdly, because although Clement opposes Basilides on a number of points, he isn't as hostile to what Basilides is doing on a fundamental level as other writers. That is, Clement also digs esotericism in Christianity. He also has a weird system of emanatory realities. He also perhaps teaches reincarnation. And he also brings Greek philosophy and esoteric interpretation of scripture to bear in equal measures upon the Christian canon. So the more or less seven testimonies to Basilides' teachings we have from Clement are generally agreed to be the best material we have, least likely to be garbled and or polemically distorted. The same goes for a few references in Origen, coming in the third century, further away in time and still hostile, but not opposed to an esotericist philosophical Christianity per se. Our other main sources are anti-Basilides, but also, I would say, can helpfully be called anti-esotericist. These are the orthodoxy builders. We have Irenaeus of Lyon, who's against heresies we met in the previous episode. He's the guy, listeners will recall, who also had a hand in deciding what texts would be considered canonical out of the enormous plethora of Christian writings sloshing around the Mediterranean at the time. We also have Hippolytus, or the Pseudo-Hippolytus' refutation of all heresies, also known as the Philosophumena, from sometime in the 3rd century. And finally, Eusebius, whose 4th century history of the Church is extremely problematic as a primary source for early Christians for obvious reasons. But we will still be citing it because it's instructive for the way in which suppression of thinkers like Basilides occurred. Now, it's notorious that our two fullest heresiological accounts of Basilides' thought, those of Irenaeus and Hippolytus, seem to paint a picture of two different thinkers. There is thus a lot of controversy over what evidence we should take as referring to the historical Basilides. Clement is surely a good bet, but beyond that, it's hard to know whom to pick as the best source. And there are a number of possible ways in which his real teachings might have gotten garbled. The fact that there were Basilideans teaching after his death is one important possibility. In other words, 
just as we've seen in our history of Pythagoras and Pythagoreanism, it's sometimes the case that later speculations which travel under the name of a thinker, in our case, Basilides, are read by outsiders as being the teachings of the thinker, when in fact they're the product of the fertile movement founded by the original theoretician. So we've seen lots of Pythagorean ideas foisted back onto Pythagoras. And the same thing may be the case with Basilides and the Basilideans. Be all of this as it may, we shall be looking at some of the interesting ideas which survive about Basilides, not because they necessarily were the ideas of Basilides himself, but because, just as with Pythagoras again, the imaginary constructed about this thinker by later authors took on a life of its own and had a major influence on Western esotericism. The fact that we know very little about Basilides did not stop esotericists from re-embracing an idea of Basilidean Gnosticism. Carl Jung, to take one important example, published only one part of his famous Red Book, an important apocryphon of the modern esoteric traditions, during his lifetime. This was the Seven Sermons to the Dead, which he put out as an appendix to his biography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. So this is a tiny slice of this much larger and very weird visionary work he wrote. Now, the Seven Sermons has the subtitle, quote, Seven Exhortations to the Dead Written by Basilides of Alexandria, the city where East and West meet. So for Jung, an ardent reinterpreter of ancient Gnosis, Basilides was not only an important thinker, he was the author of some of Jung's own works. This is a rather Borgesian idea. And, as it happens, Jorge Luis Borges was also taken with the figure of Basilides and wrote an interesting little essay about him. In the more sober reflections of scholars, the picture of Basilides, which has emerged, has also been a very radically varied one. And this stems partly from which evidence scholars choose to interpret when trying to reconstruct Basilides' thought. Those plonking for Hippolytus read him as a pioneer of heavily apophatic theology, reminiscent of later Platonism, like that of Plotinus. Thus, Basilides has been seen as a forerunner of Plotinus. He's been described as an Aristotelianizing Gnostic. He's been seen as the first theoretician of the idea that the soul, in descending to a body, receives accretions from the planets on its way down, the so-called theory of the soul vehicle. He's been called a Buddhist Gnostic on the assumption that the weird stuff in his thought couldn't possibly have had a Greek origin. But out of all this kind of welter of different opinions, I think we can rest quite assuredly on the judicious summation of Bentley Layton that Basilides, quote, must have set a stunning precedent in educated Christian circles as the first Christian philosopher and one of the earliest New Testament expositors a predecessor figure whose significance was combated and eventually repressed by orthodox memory. End of quote. So let's get into the thought of one of the earliest interpreters of the Gospels and one of the earliest Christian philosophers and see what's going on. First of all, we're going to look at two longish testimonies to Basilides' role in church history. First of all, let's check out Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History. Now, this is a long citation, so bear with us, because it's interesting in a number of ways. Eusebius has got up to about the year 135 in his narrative, and he's been talking about the persecutions that Christians have been undergoing. 
the devil, finding that persecution wasn't working, turned to subversion from within. Eusebius constructs a heretical lineage stemming from a certain teacher called Menander, who is an obscure figure, sometimes considered a very early Gnostic teacher, but we don't know anything about the guy really. And he's implicating Basilides in this lineage. Note also that Basilides is portrayed as making false claims to esoteric authority. So, Satan was, quote, plotting by every means that sorcerers and deceivers might assume the same name as our religion, and lead to the depth of destruction those of the faithful whom they caught. Thus from Menander there proceeded a certain snake-like power with two mouths and a double head, and established the leaders of two heresies, Saturninus, an Antiochian by race, and Basilides of Alexandria. Irenaeus makes it plain that Basilides, under the pretext of secret doctrine, stretched fancy infinitely far, fabricating monstrous myths for his most impious heresy. Let's stop there for a moment. Irenaeus tells us, cited by Eusebius, that Basilides made up monstrous myths under the pretext of secret doctrine. You can kind of see why he says that. As we, When we get to his cosmological myths, you'll see that they're, if not monstrous, at least very creative and rather mind-boggling. Now, under the pretext of secret doctrine, this is proschemeti de aporetoteron in Greek. In other words, Basilides was appealing to the mystic topos of the aporeton, the unsayable secret of the initiate, as in the initiate to the mysteries. But these are aporetoteron, something more like more hidden or deeper mysteries in the um, comparative. So I think this testimony reflects Basilides' claim, which we shall see again in the course of this episode, to possess an esoteric wisdom not suitable for the mass of Christians. Now back to Eusebius. A most powerful refutation of Basilides has reached us from Agrippa Castor, a most famous writer of that time, revealing the cleverness of the man's deceptions. Agrippa says that Basilides compiled books on the gospel and that he named his own prophets, Bar Kabas and Bar Kof, and that he set up some others for himself who had never existed, but that he invented barbarous names for them to astonish those who were influenced by such things. He taught that there was no harm in eating things offered to idols or in lightheartedly denying the faith in times of persecution. Like Pythagoras, he enjoined those who came to him to keep silence for five years. End of quote. So this Agrippa Castor is unknown to us outside of this citation of him, but he tells us some interesting things. Basilides was easygoing about things like ritually impure foods and about not insisting that one was a Christian when the anti-Christian persecutors knocked on your door. This marks him as a turncoat to the intransigent, uncompromising school of orthodoxy to which Eusebius belongs. To quote the Leuven brothers, that word broad-minded is spelled S-I-N. Basilides is also fond of some prophets with Hebrew-sounding names, but these are no prophets of the received Christian canon. We are perhaps looking at a side current of revealed wisdom, which may well have given fuel to Basilides' ideas. We also have a nice reference here to the topos of Pythagorean silence, a perennial favorite for evoking the mystique of esoteric teaching. See episode 18 of the podcast for more on this. So whether or not Basilides actually enjoined his students to be silent for five years, the point is 
They were being esoteric, like the Pythagoreans. So, so much for Eusebius. Basilides was an arch-heretic. He fabricated monstrous myths under the guise of teaching an esoteric Christianity. And he was way too easygoing about separating himself from the non-Christian scum. Now let's turn to the earlier testimony of Clement of Alexandria, also doing a kind of intellectual church history here. This is from Clement's Stromates or Stromata or Miscellany, a work of esoteric Christianity of exceptional importance for the history of Western esotericism. So stay tuned for more on the Strom. We shall see Clement attacking what he sees as false claims to esoteric wisdom, as well as the novelty of what Basilides is doing. That is, Basilides and those who, like him, claim to represent a tradition going back to Jesus himself are in fact making up new stuff. Who are the people Clement is attacking? They are those who, quote, digging clandestinely through the wall of the church and stepping over the truth, they constitute themselves the mystagogues of the soul of the impious. For the teaching of our Lord at his advent, beginning with Augustus and Tiberius, was completed in the middle of the times of Tiberius, and that of the apostles, embracing the ministry of Paul, ends with Nero. It was later, in the times of Hadrian, that those who invented the heresies arose, and they extended to the age of Antoninus the Elder, as for an instance Basilides, though he claims, as they boast, for his master Glaucias, the interpreter of Peter. Let's stop for a moment here. Who is this Glaucias? Well, he's a hermeneutis of Peter, which has been interpreted as a number of possible things. It might mean a disciple of Peter, but it literally means interpreter, either in the sense of translator or of interpreter, like someone who explains what Peter meant. So no one agrees what's going on here. But there are a couple of other references to this Glaucias guy. Sometimes he's called Glaucos instead. And what seems to be going on is that Basilides is claiming a lineage of Jesus, Peter, Glaucius, Basilides. This kind of thing would still be possible in the early 2nd century, and you can see why such a lineage would bear serious weight among Christians if it were genuine, or taken to be genuine. Other sources tell us that Basilides claimed to have inherited his teachings from the apostle Matthias. So either way, he's claiming a serious connection with the apostles themselves who knew Jesus, right? Now, Back to Clement, who is going to deny such lineages to any of these second century teachers. Quote, Likewise, they allege that Valentinus was a hearer of Theudas, and he was a pupil of Paul. For Marcion, who arose in the same age with them, lived as an old man with the younger heretics, and after him Simon heard for a little the preaching of Peter. So that's Simon Magus, of course. Such being the case, it is evident from the high antiquity and perfect truth of the church that these later heresies and those yet subsequent to them in time were new inventions falsified. From what has been said then, it is my opinion that the true church, that which is really ancient, is one, and that in it those who according to God's purposes are just are enrolled. For from the very reason that God is one and the Lord one, that which is in the highest degree honorable is lauded in consequence of its singleness being an imitation of the one first principle. In the nature of the one, then, is associated in a joint heritage the one church, which they strive to cut asunder into many sects. 
Therefore, in substance and idea, in origin, in preeminence, we say that the ancient and Catholic Church is alone, collecting as it does into the unity of the one faith, which results from the peculiar testaments, or rather the one testament in different times by the will of the one God, through one Lord. Those already ordained, whom God predestinated, knowing before the foundation of the world that they would be righteous. But the preeminence of the church as the principle of union is in its oneness in this surpassing all things else and having nothing like or equal to itself. Of all the heresies, some receive their appellation from a person's name, as that which is called after Valentinus, and that after Marcion, and that after Basilides, although they boast of adducing the opinion of Matthew. For as the teaching, so also the tradition of the apostles was one. Some take their designation from a place, as the Paratici, some from a nation, as the Phrygians, some from an action, as the Encratites, and some from particular dogmas, as that of the Docetai, and that of the Hermatites, and some from suppositions and from individuals they have honored, as those called Canists and the Ophians, and some from nefarious practices and enormities, as those of the Simonians called Entuchites. End of quote. I hope you stayed with me for that. It's a long one, I know. But there's a lot there that is of interest to us. Clement insists on the unity of the church, and also somehow on its great antiquity, although it was not particularly ancient in his time. I don't quite know how he gets away with that. We see here another reason why the term hieresis evolved into what is meant by the English word heresy. This insistence on unity of doctrine, which is given by Clement an ontological importance. The unity of the church reflects God's oneness here on earth. And Clement has given us a quick heresiological inventory of the sorts of folks he and his ilk were worried about in the second century. So you can see kind of a nice illustration of the way heresies were divided up, named after the founder, named after the place where they live, named after the guy they're into, named after something else. So anyway, these are two reconstructions of the history of the early church, which we've thought it worthwhile to quote, as they give us some flavor to the matters discussed in the last episode, as well as casting light on how these orthodoxophiles viewed Basilides. But now let's see what we can reconstruct of Basilides' thought, which got these later Christians so hot under the collar. We can break down this discussion thematically, looking at cosmology and anthropology, apophasis, and Christian identity. So, first cosmology. And this stuff is great. We can reconstruct Basilides' teachings about reality and man's place in it by combining the testimonies of Clement and Irenaeus. This may not be exactly right, but let's say we have some general outline of the kind of universe Basilides conceived of. So, to begin with, Basilides conceived of the first god, the highest reality, as highly transcendent, utterly beyond the ability for human language or thought to comprehend. We'll return to this in a moment because our really solid apophatic quote from Basilides comes not from Clement or Irenaeus, but from the Pseudo-Hippolytus. But based on Clement and Irenaeus, we know that this being, or non-being, was called the unengendered parent, or the sourceless source, or the unnameable. And these epithets definitely lead us in the direction of apophatic thinking, especially sourceless source. Uh, when thinkers want to express a reality which can't be expressed, 
paradox is often the first tool that they reach for. So call something the sourceless source that kind of gives you an idea that it's not a source in any normal sense of the word. From this sourceless source emanate a series of seven hypostases. The first is, of course, a noose or divine mind. We're in Middle Platonist territory here. Next comes the Logos. We would expect this Logos to be Christ in some kind of hypercosmic form, but at least in Irenaeus, Christ is the only begotten noose of the unengendered parent. So the noose is above the Logos. I'm not quite sure what the Logos does, but any rate, after the noose and Logos, we have prudence, phronesis, wisdom, sophia, power, dunamis, and these two get together and give rise to justice and peace. So as with many of the thinkers, generally known as Gnostics, there is a lot of space between the first god and the cosmos where we live, and it's occupied by multiple emanations, which often take the form of divine attributes. So we've seen, for example, Sophia, wisdom. Now she'll appear in a lot of these cosmologies going forward, but she seems to have been relatively unimportant for Basilides based on the surviving evidence, which is kind of interesting. Note that there are eight divine powers in all, an Ogdoad, in other words, so some esoteric Christians were into Ogdoads, and we have a text from Nag Hammadi called The Ogdoad Reveals the Ennead, or The Eight Reveals the Nine. Now, the lowest emanation, peace, creates angels and other spiritual powers, and these actually create the outermost cosmic heaven. So we're dealing already with a very complex chain of demiurgic creation here, but it gets way more complex. The angels and powers of this outermost heaven then give rise to a heaven below that, with its own angels and powers and so forth. So, to, just to recap, we have these eight hypercosmic kind of emanating powers coming out of the unnameable first god, sorry, seven, and then eight if you count the unnameable first god, and beneath them is the cosmos, which has a further 365 spheres or heavens, hence the 365 days of the year. Each one with a kind of ruling angel, which causes it to rotate, and loads of other spiritual beings living in it. But dig this, the entire cosmos that we see, the fixed stars, the planets, everything, is the lowest of the 365. So Basilides' universe is vast, and it is densely populated, and we're just a tiny, tiny kernel right in the middle on the Earth, underneath the lowest of the 365 heavens. Now, it is clear that Basilides is influenced by astronomical astrological theory of his day. Irenaeus even tells us that this is the case. He says he sort of rips off the, the theories of the astrologers, but the details are a bit difficult to make out. He is a strong believer in providence and fate, and he preaches a Stoic-esque kind of resignation. The Basilidian Christian is to love all that is because it is the product of divine planning. So while we do have a big separation between humans and the first god, we do not seem in Basilides to have a world-hating, stereotypically Gnostic kind of anti-cosmic pessimism at all. In fact, everything is exactly as it should be, seemingly from the fragments that survive. 
What exactly his take on free will was, or how he thought humans might possibly escape from fate, we don't know, but he seems to have had a very positive view of fate. Anyway, we do know that he believed that the human soul, in descending into the body, and we don't know quite where it descended from, but from somewhere more divine than here, in descending into the body, it picked up accretions of qualities from each of the planets it passed. Thus, we gain on our entry into the world a kind of evil soul against which we have to struggle, and hence the title of this episode, I've Got Soul and I'm Super Bad. It may be that Basilides is the earliest known attestation of the doctrine that the soul in descending takes on planetary qualities, and if this is the case, it's quite important and very important for Western esotericism, because we will be seeing this idea again. This doctrine would seem to imply that the escape from the evil soul was conceived of as an ascent, possibly with each planetary sphere in turn needing to be dealt with by the ascending Christian, and presumably all 364 other spheres as well. We shall see this idea again also, the idea of cosmic ascent to return to God, and we will see it in a big way. In Basilides' system, there was indeed a saving gnosis, according to Irenaeus. This was the knowledge of the architecture of all the hundreds of spheres, the names of all the angels, and so on. In fact, let's cite Irenaeus here, because he brings in the question of the Basilidians' esotericism in the context of this gnosis. So Irenaeus says, He then who has learned these things and known all the angels and their causes, is rendered invisible and incomprehensible to the angels and all the powers. And as the sun, that's S-O-N, as the sun was unknown to all, so must they also be known by no one. But while they know all and pass through all, they themselves remain invisible and unknown to all. For they say, know all, but let nobody know thee. For this reason, persons of such a persuasion are also ready to recant their opinions. Yea, rather it is impossible that they should suffer on account of a mere name, since they are like to all. The multitude, however, cannot understand these matters, but only one out of a thousand or two out of ten thousand. End of quote. So, the Basilidians see themselves as a tiny spiritual elite, set apart by their privileged esoteric knowledge. And they believe that their esotericism makes them invisible to the powers here on earth, as well as invisible to the cosmic powers which will seek to bind them here below on earth. Nice. As for his doctrine of reincarnation, we have a very interesting comment from Origen, writing in the third century, this is especially interesting because maybe, just maybe, Origen himself taught a doctrine of reincarnation esoterically. All will be revealed when we discuss the great Origen. But for the moment, note how Basilides seems to have couched his teaching on the subject in terms of scriptural hermeneutics. Origen says, quote, Basilides has related the Apostle Paul's statement to irrelevant blasphemous tales. On the basis of this saying of the apostles, he tries to defend the doctrine of reincarnation, namely the idea that souls get transferred from one body to another. He says, Indeed, the apostle has said, I was once alive apart from the law, 
That is, before I came into this body, I lived in the kind of body that is not subject to the law, the body of a domestic animal or a bird. End of quote. So the I was once alive apart from the law is quoting a letter to the Romans 7-9 of Paul, which we do find in the canonical Bible. And um, Basilides is reading, perhaps against the grain here, that this reference to I was once alive apart from the law is a reference to transmigration into animal bodies. Also nice. So far, so good. We have humans reincarnating again and again into this realm of fate, which is an exceptionally complex, emanated cosmos and hypercosmos with numerous levels, all full of living, knowing entities of various kinds. And at the very, very lowest bottom basement level of this, is the earth where we humans are but a tiny elite of humans the basilideans presumably are able to ascend back up and speaking of ascent let's return to basilides's apophatic first god except there's nothing to return to the possibly pseudo hippolytus quotes him concerning the moment before creation when there was nothing but god and in this quote, he gets seriously apophatic in a way which reminds many readers, including myself, of Plotinus and other later Platonists, who also got serious about unsaying the unsayable. So here's the quotation. There was a time, he says, he being Basilides, when nothing was, but the nothing was not any existing thing. Rather, there was purely and straightforwardly and without any sophism, absolutely not a single thing. When I say there was a time, I'm not saying that there literally was, but I say that there was absolutely not a thing in order to intimate what it is that I'm trying to explain, for that is not absolutely ineffable, which is named. That indeed, which we call ineffable, is not ineffable, and the not even ineffable is not named ineffable, but is above any name it could be given. So, Basilides, if it is he, really wants us to take seriously the idea that nothing we can think of or say even approximates the reality of God in his essence or lack of essence. This is classic strong apophaticism, and I would argue classic esotericism in that the speech act here is one which reveals a hiding rather than actually telling us anything positive. He's saying, there is a God, but it cannot even be called a God. It cannot be described. Nothing I can tell you about it makes sense. Now, if this quote isn't really from Basilides, and some think it might reflect the teachings of one of his followers, perhaps, rather than the man himself, it's still a remarkable passage worth quoting as it represents a seriously early foray into strong linguistic transcendence. This kind of language will become a staple of esotericism in the 3rd century and beyond. But here in the early 2nd century, it's fairly unusual and quite striking. We've seen hints of this kind of language of transcendence already in Philo of Alexandria, of course, who stands out in the 1st century. And we've seen little hints from the surviving fragments of Numenius as well, 2nd century thinker, but Basilides is taking things far. He's even saying, even to call the thing unnameable is wrong. 
because if you call it unnameable, it's not truly unnameable because unnameable is kind of a name. This sort of really self-recursive, self-deconstructing apophatic language, which we love. Now then, before we finish with Basilides, and we must finish with him soon, we can ask who are Jesus and the God of the Old Testament in all of this? Aside from the fact that he's been reading the epistles of Paul, we haven't really seen much that would associate him with Christianity per se so far in this episode. So let's do one last long quote from Irenaeus here. It's densely packed with great stuff, so it's worth quoting at some length. This is Irenaeus writing about, well, Basilides' theory of religion. Quote, Those angels who occupy the lowest heaven, that, namely, which is visible to us, formed all the things which are in the world, and made allotments among themselves of the earth and of those nations which are upon it. As an aside here, this is serious demiurgy. Like, not only did the highest God not create the world, you don't even get the world created until you get to the lowest of 365 heavens and the angels that live there. So the act of creation is seriously, seriously being distanced from the first God. Returning to our quote, the chief of them, these angels, is he who is thought to be the God of the Jews. And inasmuch as he desired to render the other nations subject to his own people, that is the Jews, all the other princes resisted and opposed him. Wherefore, all other nations were at enmity with his nation. As an aside, there you go. Basilides has explained anti-Semitism. Back to our quote. But the father without birth and without name, perceiving that they would be destroyed, sent his own first begotten noose, he who is called Christ, to bestow deliverance on them that believe in him from the power of those who made the world. He appeared then on earth as a man to the nations of these powers and wrought miracles. Wherefore, he did not himself suffer death, but Simon, a certain man of Cyrene, being compelled, bore the cross in his stead, so that this latter being transfigured by him, that he might be thought to be Jesus, was crucified through ignorance and error, while Jesus himself received the form of Simon and standing by laughed at them. For since he was an incorporeal power, and the noose of the unborn father, he transfigured himself as he pleased, and thus ascended to him who had sent him, deriding them all, inasmuch as he could not be laid hold of and was invisible to all. Those then who know these things have been freed from the principalities who formed the world, so that it is not incumbent on us to confess him who was crucified, but him who came in the form of a man and was thought to be crucified and was called Jesus and was sent by the Father, that by this dispensation he might destroy the works of the makers of the world. If anyone, therefore, he declares, confesses the crucified, that man is still a slave and under the power of those who formed our bodies. But he who denies him has been freed from these beings and is acquainted with the dispensation of the unborn father. End of quote. So, there's a lot to unpick in this wonderful passage. First of all, Basilides, in a way, can accommodate all the national gods and goddesses of the world in his system. Greek, Roman, Jewish, they're all real, and they're all just different angels of the lowest heaven. As Leighton points out, 
many second century Christian thinkers would have agreed on this sort of qualified reality of the pagan pantheon. For example, Justin Martyr, an important early heresiologist. Second of all, note the docetism. Docetism is the heretical position that Christ was not really crucified, but only seemed to be crucified. We shall encounter this position again and again, and uh, Muslims, for example, are docetists. Thirdly, note the idea of a saving knowledge. Quote, those then who know these things have been freed from the principalities who formed the world. End of quote. Knowledge of metaphysics and cosmic myth are the key to salvation in the Basilidian system. So he really is a Gnostic. Okay, but I would just caution listeners here to note the kind of gnosis we are looking at in these passages. Knowledge of angelic hierarchies, maybe magical passwords and such for getting through the spheres and being invisible, like we talked about earlier, and true knowledge of Christ's nature as an immaterial noose who just looked like a human being. These are all the kinds of gnosis that is meant. In other words, this is all esoteric stuff, but it is in no way mystical in the sense of another kind of knowing or another kind of epistemology different from the everyday epistemology. The first god of Basilides is beyond everyday thought, for sure, but the surviving fragments of Basilides don't mention any special mode of knowing which might allow us to comprehend the first god. So one popular construction of Gnosis as a form of mystical intuition or some kind of high-end epistemological function that allows you to comprehend things that are not comprehensible by normal human thought, right? Like a higher form of hyper-knowledge. This is not applicable to what Basilides is saying, at least in the fragments that survive. He's talking about secret knowledge. He's talking about things that may well have been, in fact, passwords or um, angelic names which allowed you to pass step-by-step step through the spheres, not unlike some of the things we've seen in Hechelot texts. Last but not least, what kind of Christians are the Basilideans? Well, Irenaeus tells us they claim not to be Christians at all. Quote, they declare that they are no longer Jews and they are not yet Christians, and that it is not at all fitting to speak openly of their mysteries, but right to keep them secret by preserving silence. End of quote. So, are they Christians? From an outsider perspective, they certainly are, if our definition of Christian is something like someone who thinks the figure of Jesus is crucially important to the story of salvation, which Basilides seems to have done. But whatever they are, they are esoteric. This much seems clear. Now, there's a lot more we could say about Basilides' thought, and probably a few things we've missed out here that will come up in future episodes. Um, certainly will be doing a little comparative work when we talk about Valentinianism and Marcionism. And Basilides' Christology is very, very fascinating, but also very difficult to interpret, and so we're just going to have to skip it, basically. Although we've seen some key points. Christ was the divine noose, brought into human-ish form. What exactly his sort of salvific role in coming to earth was is a point that scholars argue about. But anyway, you can check him out for yourself if you're interested in these matters. The surviving fragments of Basilides can all be found in Bentley Layton's collection, The Gnostic Scriptures, which you can find in the notes to this episode. And they make for a fascinating read. 
tragically, it'll only take you half an hour to read them because there's so little of it there, but it's uh, a lot of really, really fascinating stuff. I hope you've enjoyed this whirlwind tour through the thought of Basilides. He's worth reading, if only for his absolutely vast, complex cosmic scheme. And what's especially interesting to me is that in antiquity, in a geocentric cosmos, say one like that of Aristotle, humans are actually dwelling in a very small universe. The universe today is much, much bigger than it was back then. But Basilides is taking a geocentric cosmos and making it infinitely vast and infinitely full of rippling spiritual powers and emanations and echoes of higher levels at lower levels. And this is a territory which I think it's safe to say the Basilidean can navigate. In the next episode, we'll be discussing the fascinating, if not quite so vast, universe of the Valentinians. And until then, avoid the fatal influence of the rulers of the cosmos by staying esoteric. <laughs>